once I couldn't find my sermon, and I had everyone in church looking for where I might have misplaced it, I was sitting on it. So I had tucked my Bible up already, so just had to find what I'd done with it. Every time I prepare to travel, my mind kind of torments me. No, I'm really not worried about plane crashes. In fact, I liked to go in small planes when Mark had one, and he would do these takeoff and landing practices, and I would pray for my children every time just in case something happened. I'm not afraid of those. What are the odds? especially in a commercial plane. But I began to fear an unpleasant fate, much more probable, the big C, cancellations, and the big D, delays. I can tell you when I was delayed at almost every airport across the country. I've been stranded in Philly, LaGuardia, O'Hare, and Denver. And I think at Potluck we could swap stories of being stranded places. Sometimes the airline gives me a luxury bed at the Hilton. Those are the good times. Other times I get to lie on the cold tile floor in ticketing at Logan Airport in Boston, shivering so hard that my teeth rattled from the air conditioning. My jacket was in the checked baggage, and it was already in Chicago. All night long, there was this announcement on a three-minute loop, warning me not to accept anything from a stranger. But by 4 a.m., I was begging anyone I saw for a jacket or a coat or a blanket. So it's not fun to be delayed. No one enjoys a delay, especially when you're travel-weary and it's uncertain how and when you're going to make it home. But have you noticed that you're never as miserable if you volunteered to give up your seat to earn a free ticket on the next trip? Any of you like to do that? It's kind of fun. On our way back home from Kauai last week, we were offered a first-class seat and a $600 travel voucher each if we would just wait and come home at 11.30 that night, which would have meant flying all night. And I was really bummed that Mark said, no, I can't do that this week, I'm sorry. Having a purpose for what you're doing makes your delay acceptable, and it changes everything. I remember the precious thing my daughter Amy would say when she was little and one of us would get hurt, when I wrecked the car or when there had been an argument. She would say, I wish Jesus would come today. Don't you wish Jesus would come today? Absolutely. And since I'm serving older congregations and I worked as a chaplain at Parkview Hospital, I'm pretty aware of the human condition. We're all on a trajectory, aren't we? We get older, then we get sick, then we die. There's kind of a one-to-one correspondence 
to that trajectory. You don't need to be told this. And this week, after losing a very close friend to COVID, and watching so many people I love struggle with chronic illness, I can't help but ask, oh Jesus, this is really rotten right now. The world is convulsing with pain. Why are you taking so long? I wish you would come today, Jesus. But if I am reading the scripture correctly, the fact that we are still on planet Earth is not evidence that God doesn't care about humans in pain. Instead, it is exactly the opposite. The delay of the second coming is evidence that God loves humankind. He could have blown the whistle and proclaimed, game over, man, centuries ago. But he didn't. He sees every tear and he feels every heartache. If I could see all the pain that God could see, I could not stand it. I would wrap human history up in a hurry. But somehow, God sees a purpose that is even more compelling than ending human pain on earth. 2 Peter 3 describes why we are still waiting. Verse 3 warns us that there will be scoffers in the last days who are more than willing to tell us how foolish we are to take Christ at his word. People will laugh at us because we still believe in a literal, visible return of Christ. And they will ask us, well, where is he? Did he get distracted and forget about this earth? Is he stranded at some cosmic airport with a canceled flight? He said soon, and it's been over 2,000 years. 178 years since the last time prophecy was fulfilled. So where is he anyway? What's taking so long? 1 Peter 3.9 tells us that God delays his coming for a specific reason. God willingly takes a delay to obtain additional tickets. Tickets to heaven for those who would be left behind otherwise. There should be a purpose behind our delay, and there is a purpose. And the Bible tells us, tells us he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. Can you say that with me? Not wanting anyone to perish, but all, everyone, to come to repentance. In his infinite wisdom, God knows the plan that time will make a difference in some that would be lost if he came right now, today. He knows what his spirit can do over time, patiently working with human beings. He knows what could happen, and nothing is impossible with God. But he will not violate the human will. 
So he buys time to patiently plead with stubborn human hearts. He doesn't want the story of redemption to come to a close because he doesn't want to leave anyone behind. When we start to feel impatient that we are stranded at a seemingly unending layover on earth, it would do well for us to remember the tenderness of God's heart toward the lost. God does nothing without a reason. And his motivation is always, always merciful. So verse 15 tells us this. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. The wonderful, merciful Savior who would have gone to the cross for just one of us refuses to blow that whistle today if it means the salvation of just one more. God loves lost people. Maybe you should say that with me too. God loves lost people. The fact that he hasn't come back yet is clear evidence of the value of the human soul. When will we understand that his heart loves and values lost people? And when will we come to love and value the same? When we complain to him that we're still stuck here and we're getting older and it doesn't feel good, he longs for us to understand why. Verse 8 gives us some insight into his patience. God lives outside of the realm of time. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. When we've been there 10,000 years, when we've been in heaven and living in, in perfect harmony with God and each other, will we be distressed because he took another year or two to save our kids? Or will we say, Lord, all you do is just and merciful and fair? Will we be grateful when we get to heaven that he took more time so that the people we love could be with us? If that one more is my kid, I'm willing to take the pain of being stranded here on earth. Seeing the purpose of his delay adjusts our attitude toward him. Being a parent has really helped me understand the heart of God and his delay like never before. And so often when I see the behavior of one of my kids and it grieves me, I will pray this little prayer. I entrust them to the Spirit because I know he has access right into their hearts, right into their minds, right inside. I cannot get in there like he can. There's still so many choices that my kids are making that are not mine anymore to make. And then I always finish by reminding myself 
the story is not over yet. With our kids, the story is not over yet, which means that I am counting on his grace and his mercy to finish their story well. And this is why. It says in the book of Ezekiel, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. God does not want your kids lost, right? He takes no pleasure in death. Have you taken the time to thank God for this wonderful truth about his character? Mercy is our only hope. Mercy is our kids' only hope. But we know that he is merciful, and we know that he is patient. Thank God for his amazing patience. But he is in no hurry. Remember, he has forever. He knows that some of those who scoff him today may believe and praise him before he comes back. My friends, because of his salvation, we have forever to. We need to put time into that reference of the foreverness of what we have in eternity with God. Our trials, it says, will be light and momentary in comparison with being with Jesus for eternity. Light and momentary. Have your trials felt light and momentary recently? Only when we take the long view can they seem light and momentary. But between now and then, God has a very hard task, what the Bible calls his strange work, something he dreads to the bottom of his ever-loving heart. If he wasn't perfect, I'd say he's procrastinating. Maybe he's the perfect procrastinator because he hates what he's going to have to do. He is going to destroy sin, and he cannot destroy sin without also destroying sinners. And those people that he loves so intensely are going to die without the hope of ever living again. Hell is intended to purify the earth, but it's not God's desire that a single human being ever be included in that destruction. It says that hell is prepared for the devil and his angels, but not for human beings. Second Peter 3, verses 10 and 11, describe the thoroughness of the fire which God plans to clean up this mess that we've made on planet Earth. It says the elements will melt with fervent heat, and everything will be laid bare. That's hot. God is able to do a decontamination job upon sin and its results 
that the EPA can only dream about. Hell is an event, not a place. It's going to be dramatic, and it's going to be thorough, and it's going to be fast. It's not motivated by God's wrath, but God's love. Because if he didn't clean up the mess, we would just go on forever like it is now. Anybody want to sign up? We want him to take care of the mess that has been made on human planet Earth. So in verse 13, it tells us we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of the righteous. We can't have that new heaven and new earth without hell in the interim. And then verse 11 tells us, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what people, what kind of people should you be, ought you to be? Okay, how would you answer that? Look at, at the next verse. It says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. There's a word for people that look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. What is that word? Adventists? That's who we are. We are Adventists. It means we are looking forward to Jesus coming back. It's a wonderful word. Don't ever be ashamed to use it. It's a, it's a wonderful word. And then the rest of the verse describes what our lives need to be about, what we need to be like. We need to live holy and godly lives as we look forward. And we need to speed its coming. We need to be people who love the lost and who spend our lives finding ways to share the mercy of our merciful God and to share the news of his unfailing love and his power to save and change broken, selfish people. So how do we speed his coming? By loving lost people. Not by judging lost people, but by loving lost people. In verses 12, 13, and 14, there's a repetitive word a phrase that is really helpful. I love it. What word is repeated in this passage three times? What phrase? Looking forward. Look forward. Okay, that's part of being Adventist, is looking forward instead of looking back. Looking forward. And what are we looking forward to? Jesus coming back, that day of the Lord, the new heaven and the new earth, and then since we are looking forward to these, it says make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Christ's coming may be delayed, but it has not been canceled. Okay? Just remember that. It has not been canceled. Look forward, my friends. Look forward. 
Someday our earthly layover will come to an end and we will go home with him. We have something to look forward to. It is a blessed hope on which we set our hearts and our sights, remembering every day that he is coming and we won't be stranded here forever. Lift up your heads. Redemption draws nigh. The story is not over yet. So God can be completely loving, completely trustworthy, completely in control, and yet delay his coming because he sees the long view of eternity. He envisions spending eternity with those who will be saved because he was patient, because he waited. And you know what? God thinks it's worth the wait. Do we? Do we think it's worth the wait? Okay, so this is all beloved, familiar territory. We have a wonderful hope. But now I want to take just a really different, unusual twist with it. I found this in a Beth Moore workbook entitled Living Beyond Yourself, which is a Bible study on the fruit of the Spirit. And this was in the study on patience. And I printed them on the Today Service page, so if, if you want to think about it more, it's there. It says, God's patience means salvation. What would be the polar opposite of biblical patience? Think about the model that God displayed for us when he postponed the flood for 120 years. And then after it was over, he vowed never to flood the earth. And now he is again delaying judgment as long as possible. Why? Remember the Second Peter text. Why is he delaying the judgment as long as possible? Yeah, so that all will come to repentance and no one will perish. Can you see the scripture? Contrast these two themes, patience and judgment. The opposite practice from patience is the Greek word macrothumia, which means long-suffering toward another inspired by mercy. It means not getting ticked off easy. And even when you are a little ticked off, not acting it out that you're ticked off. The judgment is the word krino, which means to pass judgment upon, condemn, take vengeance on. This is never the kind of judgment that God gives us. It means to try someone as if they stand accused before you in the court of law. We can see why patience and judgment are opposites. The essence of the biblical word for patience means the delaying of judgment. So how about you? Do you have an easy time delaying judgment? Or does judgment just happen naturally? Mark has a habit that I find kind of amusing. 
And that is, you know, he's got a real eye and a sensitivity for beauty. I mean, he just, he knows color and design and form. But if he sees an ugly car, he has to name it. In fact, there's one particular model that he calls the ugly, ugly. And every time that car drives past us as we're going down the road, he'll say, oh, it's an ugly, ugly. Okay, that's judgment. That's just saying somebody is so stupid that they picked an ugly car. Now, it seems humorous, but we all have things that our judgment says that is not right. Um, I happen to be very impressed with well-kept gardens. And I was going to visit a friend with my daughter Amy with me, and she says, Mom, you're judging. Stop. As I saw the garden that we were walking past. Now, none of you are ever going to want me to come to your house again, right? The point is I'm trying very hard to withhold judgment, to suspend judgment, because I have no clue what's going on in your life. Or that maybe you were taking care of a friend or doing a good deed instead of weeding, right? I'm trying very hard to say, I cannot tell what kind of person you are by how clean your house is or how well weeded your garden is. I can't. So, we cannot both judge others and be patient with them because one cancels the other. Therefore, if we are to become messengers of God's patient mercy toward others, we must learn to be void of judgment. Okay, is this going to be easier or is this going to be hard? It may be one of the hardest things we ever do, is just say, I will not judge anyone because I can't see all the facts. I am not God, and he's not taking applications for a junior God. So think of it this way. Why is Jesus waiting to return? To give everyone a chance to hear the good news and choose to follow him. To turn from selfishness and allow him access so he can change them. He's waiting because he wants to save them. But when you and I judge someone, even in our minds, we lock them in to their observable behavior at this present moment without putting their behavior in the past, their backstory, or their behavior in the future into the equation. We just judge from what we see right now today. And that's a pretty narrow judgment because it is not taking everything into the equation. So, we need to suspend judgment to allow God the freedom to keep working on their heart. And so we can help him by loving them because maybe that's the only way they can change is if they have known and received the love of God. Therefore, instead of judging them, maybe we should judge ourselves that we haven't helped them yet, that we haven't loved them well enough yet for them to know Jesus. So we often decide that the time is up, we write people off, 
we decide that they can't or won't change. And in our mind, probation closes for that person. Is that godlike? When probation closes, it's God that's going to be just the one to decide. And I personally believe that every human being that you and I like eyes with are loved by God and he's waiting to close probation until they are saved. He may, eventually he's going to have to judge and, and it's all got to be worked out. But his heart is to suspend judgment to give them time for him to work and change their hearts. When judgment completely disregards the patient, unfailing love of God, we misrepresent both his mercy and his power. Okay? We're telling a lie about God when we judge because we're saying God can't change that person and he doesn't love that person, which is absolutely false. We distort the gospel when we judge. Judgment doesn't look forward to anything but eternal loss and damnation. And I believe his plan is better than that. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Did you hear that this morning? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Unfortunately, our judgment never helps an unbeliever comprehend God's holiness or understand God's heart. It doesn't build a bridge between that person and the one, the only one who can change them. It builds a wall instead between the judged and the judgee. And as we build those walls, it cuts off their ability to be able to connect with the true judge because they've been hurt by our judgment. And you know, so much of our thoughts are displayed in our body language. We think, oh, I didn't say anything, therefore they don't know I just judged them. You've got to be kidding. We know when we're being judged, don't we? And so other people, when you're thinking horrible things about them, they can read it on your face and with the way you position yourself. And it builds this wall that keeps them from getting the help they desperately need when we judge them. Our judgment makes it even harder for God to accomplish his plan so we can all finally go home. Our judgment never speeds his coming. It delays it because he is the only judge. He is the only one. So here is a th sobering thought. Maybe our judgment does more harm to the kingdom and to God's cause, and it grieves God's heart even more than the sinful behavior we're judging. Whoa that when we judge people, maybe we are the greater sinner and more in need of grace, okay? So at the end of our service, we're gonna sing this song called Lord Have Mercy. It's not only Lord have mercy on you, a sinner, it's Lord have mercy on me, a judgmental sinner, who have, that we do this.
Two young monks, monks were sent on a spiritual pilgrimage as a preparation for taking their vows. They journeyed together for weeks, through meadows and valleys, up steep mountain paths, and through the deepest woods. Eventually, they came to a broad, swift river and realized they would have to cross it to reach their destination. On the riverbank sat an old woman, tiny, withered from age, who began to motion excitedly when they emerged from the woods. I'm so happy to see you. I must cross the river, and I can't swim. I'm not strong enough anymore. I've been praying for God to make a way, and he sent me to you. Thanks be to God. Well, this created a dilemma for the two young men. The vows of their order promised that they would never touch a woman. They wondered if she had been placed in their pathway as a test for their obedience. She was old and obviously did not pose the temptation the rule had intended to guard against. And she was obviously in need, and there was another rule of their order that said they must help everyone when they were on a journey. One of the young men argued they must choose to stay pure. The other argued that service and mercy were a higher priority. And so for several hours, the old woman waited patiently as these two young monks prayerfully argued and deliberated. Against the protest of his friends, the second monk determinedly rose to his feet and approached the old woman. He gently lifted her frail body with the announcement, in the name of Christ, I will carry you to your destination. Without a glance back at his companion, he forded the river. The old woman clung tightly to his neck as he swam through the turbulent water. Once they reached the other side, he inquired about her final destination and offered to walk her home. They encouraged each other as they traveled, thanking the Lord for his goodness in bringing their lives together at the river's edge. Once he had left the old woman in the safe company of her family, the kind monk resumed his journey. After several days, he found his friend resting on the side of the road. They greeted each other and began to walk side by side as before. The first monk traveled in unhappy silence and refused to be engaged in the pleasant spiritual conversation his friend was trying to present. Finally, the kind monk spoke. My brother, I put the old woman down days ago. You, on the other hand, are still thinking about her. Which of us has carried her further? Could it be that our judgment is more sinful than the sin we are judging? The story is not over yet because God doesn't want it to be over yet. Because in his grace and mercy, he does not want to judge yet. So why are we so willing to judge everything and everyone around us? Several years ago, I was trying to memorize the book of James. By the way, I did not succeed. But one paragraph really hit me hard. It says, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. 
When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting upon it. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? That is the word of God, my friends. We need to take it as seriously as we need to take the seventh day as the Sabbath. Who among us is without sin in this regard? We're all in need of grace. Lord, have mercy on us. We are offered the mercy we need. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 is very interesting. It says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Okay, and then you say, well, when is the appointed time to judge? The next phrase tells us, wait until the Lord comes. Okay, has the appointed time to judge come? According to this verse. No, he says, don't judge anything or anyone because the story's not over yet. Wait until the Lord comes. Our time to judge will come. We're going to get a thousand years to be judges. We get to open the books and read the stories and know all that stuff that right now we could never comprehend about why people do what they do and what they've been through already. We will investigate and at the end of the, the, the thousand years, we will say, just and true are thy ways, O king of saints. Then the story will be over because we'll have the whole story. We'll be able to ask the questions that we really have about ourselves and other people. And we will be able to understand from God's perspective, not human perspective, people's hearts. Every day we are confronted with situations that are far too complex for us to understand, given the minute evidence, that tiny little slice of evidence that we see superficially today. A grocery store clerk once wrote to an advice columnist, Ann Landers, to complain what she had seen, people buying luxury food items like birthday cakes and bag of shrimp with their food stamps. A few weeks later, Lander's column was devoted entirely to people who had responded to the grocery clerk. One woman wrote, I didn't buy a cake, but I did buy a bag of shrimp with my food stamps. My husband has been working at a plant for 15 years, but it shut down. The shrimp casserole I made was for our wedding anniversary dinner. It is my husband's favorite food, and it fed us for three days. It was the first time in our married life that we couldn't go out to dinner for our anniversary. Another woman wrote, I'm the woman who bought the $17 cake and paid for it with food stamps. I thought the checkout woman in the store would burn a hole through me with her eyes. What she didn't know is the cake is for my little girl's birthday. It will be her last birthday cake. She has bone cancer and probably will die within six to eight months. The fact is 
God is the judge, and that is the best news in the world. Because humans make lousy judges. They don't have the whole story, ever. And I'm so glad that my salvation is not in the hands of any human being, but in our wonderful, merciful Savior. Our salvation is only up to him to decide. God sent Jesus not to condemn the world, but to save it. And God understands us completely better than ever any human ever will. So Isaiah 11, verses 2 through 4, tells us what kind of judge that Jesus will be. It says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And then the next verse, this is the good part. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. And with justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. If Jesus himself won't decide on circumstantial evidence, then it's probably a bad idea for you and I, with our much more limited wisdom, to presume that we have enough information to judge anyone. Until Jesus returns, if we're judging, we're judging ahead of time with complete information and faulty moral capacity. So, has Jesus come? Not yet. Is the story over? No, the story is not over yet. Then it's not time for us to judge. There is so much we can't see and so much we can't know. So let's pray for forgiveness for all the times that we've judged someone else ahead of time. And for compassion that we will never again stand in the way of what God wants to do in the life of someone else.